Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guests today are Karen and Ross Peshek. In 2003, Karen Peshek was a Mexican immigrant studying at Central Community College in Columbus and working at her family's Mexican grocery store. Studying at the same college was Ross Peshek. Karen learned English while slowly introducing Ross to the Hispanic culture and the Spanish language. In 2008, after Karen earned her public accounting degree and Ross was studying law, they married and moved to Mexico City. From their own experiences, they saw what it feels like to be an immigrant who does not speak the language of the country, is hindered from working, and lacks understanding of society's norms. On their return to Omaha, among other community service efforts, the Pesheks founded the True Potential Scholarship, a scholarship program for dreamers. Founded in 2014, after President Obama announced the DACA program to give a temporary work permit to young immigrants brought by their parents to the United States as minors, True Potential has awarded more than 70 scholarships to dreamers taking classes at community colleges in Nebraska and Iowa. Karen and Ross, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Karen, let's let's start the conversation with you. And okay. would you tell us about your childhood? Okay. Uh, I feel like that's a very loaded question. Um, it's uh, I have a lot of things to say about my, my childhood. So I uh, was born to my mom, uh, Dora, in 1985. Uh, her and my dad never got married. So I grew up with my mom and uh, my stepdad uh, and my two sisters that she had with uh, with him. I had a very difficult early childhood. Uh, my stepdad was a domestic abuse abuser. And um, he was very, very violent towards uh, my sisters and I and, and my mom. If I can help her too, he's, he's currently, he's in jail serving a maximum sentence in Mexico right now for the level of uh, activities that he participated in. So that's, you know, that's kind of mm-hmm. what she means. It was uh, something that happened. Uh, my 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 dad he didn't know that my mom was pregnant, uh, so um, he found out that I that he had a daughter when I was about four or five years old, because I looked like him. <laughs> so when he found out that he had a daughter, he started visiting me at my mom's house and my stepdad's, and then he started taking me on the weekends to spend time with him. And he noticed uh, that I would have bruises in my body. So he realized what was going on and uh, started fighting for full custody. I remember, in my point of view, I remember a lot of interviews with psychologists and they would have me you know, talk to a lot of different people. And they would ask me about my house life and stuff like that. So. I knew that what was going on. I was about seven or eight years old. I was actually six or seven. And uh, my dad finally got full custody of myself when I was seven. And he brought me to live with him. But uh, he got married at the same time and decided he was going to move to the United States. Uh, He had been going to the United States. He had been coming here 
for some seasons to work as a seasonal worker on the farms. As I understand the story is that he um, uh, started working and couldn't bring me with him um, because he, you know, to come here legally, it's a little paperwork. So he put on my application to come with him. But my application wasn't processed until I was, I think when I was 16 is when I finally got my papers. So I had to grow up without my dad, uh, with my grandparents, with his parents. Uh, so I would say I would see my dad about once a year when he would come and visit us. Um, and we were just waiting for my paperwork so that I could move. When I finally got my papers, I was 16 and I didn't want to leave my friends, my boyfriend, my, you know, my social circle in high school. And so I told him I didn't want to come to the United States. And I had never really lived with him, you know, so it was a very difficult. I just didn't want to move with him. I never lived with him, with my sisters, with his wife. And and I didn't know English. I didn't think that there was a lot of stuff for me to do here in the U.S. Anything that I wanted to do, I could do in Mexico, in my point of view. He said, okay, you don't have to come right now, but promise me when you're 18, when you graduate high school, you come to the United States. We went through all of this paperwork and waiting, you know, so come to the United States, learn the language. Then you go back and go to university over there. And just knowing English is going to be such a good skill for you to have. So you, I, you, I'm only asking you to come for a year and then you can go back. So before you get to age 18 then, mm-hmm. so you were born in... Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I forgot that. And I was born in Chihuahua, Mexico, which is a northern state of the republic. uh, My hometown is actually five hours south of the border um, of Texas. Yeah, it was a small town, a small town, maybe like, I don't know, how many people do you think live in Anahuac? Maybe like a thousand people. Mm -hmm. When you were living with your grandparents, what was your teenage life like? You've touched on that a little bit. What what was that like growing up as a teenager in, in that community? You know, I grew up in a, this little small town, and when my dad brought me to live with my grandparents, they enrolled me in school, in elementary school. And school was about six or eight blocks from my house, so I would walk to school every morning. My grandma is a very strict grandma, and my grandpa was a very loving person, uh, very hardworking. He was funny. To live with them, I felt very lucky and very happy. I had a lot of um, responsibilities. I had a lot of freedom. I could do what I wanted, but there were things that I needed to get done first before I went. You know, I went out and did things. But I had the opportunity to have a great childhood after seven years old because of them. They gave me everything that I needed. My, my dad always sent money for me to have everything that I needed for school and a comfortable house and everything. So it was very nice. Um, I had lots of friends. I always did very well in school. So I was always competing in math, uh, you know, contests and stuff like that. On the weekends, so my grandpa, uh, he was a taxi cab driver every other day. And then on the other days that he wasn't a taxi cab driver, he was a um, farmer. So he has a couple of ranches and he has, he keeps cattle. But Chihuahua, I don't know, have you ever been to Arizona? 
it's a it's a very um, how would you describe that uh, environment? She's from the foothills of the Rocky Mountains as they extend into Mexico. And where she's from actually has a geological formation called the Copper Canyons, which is a lot like the Grand Canyon, except for bigger. And so it's a very rugged, dry, the mountains are red, you know, dusty. Uh, I think they just got pavement uh, when I was going to visit. And so that's how I perceive it from, from my point of view. Yes, so it's a very rough environment, and I mean, I'm like, it's very extreme. It's very hot in the summer and very cold in the winter. So my grandpa's cattle, he would have to go every in the winter, especially on the days, the season that was not rainy season. He had to go every other day and bring water and food to the cattle. So he would get up early, you know, five, six in the morning. On the weekends, I would get to go with him. I would love to ride on the back of the pickup. She's really dangerous. I don't know why he let me do that, but he let me do that. And I would ride on the back of the pickup. He would bring his lunchbox. And we would go out to the ranch. He would work, uh, you know, do whatever he needed to do. And I would bring my backpack full of Barbies and all the toys that I wanted to play with. And I would, you know, you know, I would, I remember making houses and furniture for my Barbies with rocks and sticks and whatever I found on the ground. Um, and I would play by myself all day until he was done. At the break, uh, you know, around lunchtime, he would stop uh, his work. He would come and we would eat his lunch. You know, it was always sardines with saltine crackers <laughs> and um, some water and an apple, you know, and or something, uh, or some kind of fruit. But those were very happy days for me. I remember them very kind of um, simple life, uh, very basic. He would go and do his job. I would enjoy playing in nature with in the little creek at the ranch and all that stuff. It was, it was very nice. In hearing this, it makes me feel as if there is a synergy between that kind of life and what I think of as a Midwestern farming, ranching existence. Obviously, there's difference in some ways between culture and topography and geography and so on mm -hmm. and so forth, but some of these aspects of life seem to be quite similar, which is a good segue to ask about yeah. Ross and maybe describe your upbringing. You know, I'm from Omaha. I uh, my family has been in Omaha for for generations now. Uh, we come from South Omaha immigrant family. You know, generations back. But my my great grandmother worked in the factories in South Omaha for decades. Uh, my grandfather was a bricklayer all throughout Omaha. Built some of the brick buildings in Omaha that you know we used to you know drive around, and he'd say, "Built that one, built that one." He started out at 17 as a bricklayer apprentice, and he ended uh, he retired when he was like 55 years old as a foreman. And so. Lots of buildings there. My my parents both went to South High. All of my family went to South High, except for me. Um, but anyways, they you know my parents uh, were married when I was born. They got divorced before I ever knew them together. So when it comes to Karen and I, I like to say that we're both uh, one of a kind because we're the we both have a whole bunch of brothers and sisters, but we're the only ones between our parents. So my parents got, got divorced and then they, you know, kind of started on parallel tracks. I'm an attorney now, so I, I think of the, uh, 
the Wilson plan for the attorneys out there. That's how they divide custody in courts. And I was probably one of the first like generations of people to live that where I would go back and forth between both houses. My dad got remarried. I have a brother and sister on that side. Uh, my dad got remarried pretty early when I was like seven and, and he had been with my stepmother Martha since I could remember. My mom didn't get married till I was 17. And when she did get married, uh, she got married to a guy with seven kids. So that's my family. From in terms of childhood, I guess I was a basketball player. I went to public schools. You know, I mean, I was a pretty normal, normal kid, I would guess. One night to be confused, one night to speed up truth. We had a promise made for handsome than both under influence, we had divine sent to know what to say. Mind is a race of pain to call for hands of above, to lean on wouldn't be good enough for me. One night of magic rush, the start a simple touch. One night to push and scream, and then relief. Ten days of perfect tunes, the colors red and blue. We had a promise made. We were in love. So I think it was basketball that took you, Ross, to Central Community College in Columbus. Karen, it was your family, your father, that, mm -hmm. that took you there once you graduated high school in Mexico. So you then came to yes. Columbus to study. Yes. The arrangement was, the agreement was that I was uh, to come to Columbus to go to Central Community College for one year. And then I was going to go back to university in Mexico. I arrived on August 11, 2003 to Columbus. And uh, we started classes that fall. I met Ross. Our uh, first date was September 26. So just the next month, we went out Can together. you be a little more specific, please, Karen? <laughs> <laughs> she knows the dates. <laughs> if I don't, that's a problem. But <laughs> I just think it's really funny that, you know, I arrived and then I met him right away. And it's... I usually <laughs> say that I didn't let her, you know, hang out alone in the community for very long because I wasn't going to stay. She was going to have a boyfriend soon, so I had to move or I was going to lose my chance, you know. So, For me, it's amazing that I moved from so many miles away to this region and I... And he's not even from Columbus and we found each other over there. So one of the things that came through from your bio was this mutual process of learning and mm -hmm. cross-cultural and cross-language learning. So talk a little bit more about that experience of learning from each other and, and, and why you sort of embraced that and what you did learn. Well, so I like to tell a story. I think this will make it, we'll try and tell it a little bit quickly, but so I'm from Omaha and I was like terrible at Spanish. A lot of people ask me now, since I am bilingual, if I learned Spanish in high school and I was like the worst Spanish student in high school. I moved to Columbus and, you know, Columbus is not a college town, right? The community college is like 500 students. 
or was 500 at that time? Was at that time. <laughs> I don't know what it is today. But at that time, it was like 500 students. And it's a community college, so not all of those students are traditional students. Many of them are adults, or as I like to call them when I was 18, old people, right? And so <laughs> if you're there and you're an 18-year-old boy like I was, uh, immediately, you know, you're looking for a girlfriend, and all of those people are not candidates, right? So immediately, let's say it's half the campus, you go down to like 250 people. Once you get to 250, well, then half of those are boys at least, right? So you're now to 125. Then you got all the girls that, you know, have boyfriends, whatever it might be, all right? But I kind of figured that I had a pool of like three or four girls I could ask out. <laughs> I definitely knew what my options were. And she was in like three of my classes and she was by far the most beautiful girl on campus as far as I was concerned. So, you know, eventually I resolved that I was going to ask her out. So the question is about cross-cultural and like language and why we decided to continue doing this. So the first day uh, or the day I'm going to ask her out is after history class that we had together. And there's kind of a lot of movement, a lot of people. I thought it'd be a good time to ask her out. And it was a Thursday night and Nebraska happened to be playing a football game. So I figured that's as good a reason as any to ask somebody to come hang out, watch the game, get, you know, something like an easy opportunity. So I, after class, I, I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, hey, you know, my name is Ross. I'm from Omaha. Did you know Nebraska was playing tonight? She said, no. And I said, well, did you know that, um, you know, well, would, you, would you like to watch the game with me? No. Well, do you have, uh, do you have other plans? For tonight? Uh, no. Would you like to go out tomorrow night? No. Could I give you a call sometime? No. And so, I mean, I had taken like five shots and I just got totally crushed, you know? And so at that point, she wasn't striking up any other conversation. It was just no, 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 no. So, so I walked away and I figured I would just avoid a restraining order at that, at that point in time. I was there with my friend who is this, uh, who's uh, Mariana and she's from, she's a Mexican, uh, lady and she was with me, um, at that history class as well. And he was telling me all of these things. And, uh, when he leaves, uh, she turns to me and she said, why? Oh my gosh, you were so mean. And I was like, what are you talking about? What, what was he saying? And she said, well, he was asking you out. I'm like, well, I didn't know what he was saying. I was just, I thought it was something about class. And I just said, no, 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 because I was like, no, like, I don't know, like, I don't understand, like, don't talk to me, like, no, because I'm not, I'm not understanding what you're saying, not because I didn't, I wasn't saying no to all the things. But she was also, <laughs> she, she's leaving out a, a key part there too. She was also devastated by the mistake that she had made. <laughs> no, I did, no, I did tell Mariana, I did say, you know, I, I would like to go out with him. So I asked her to write on a piece of paper how to say uh, it was a misunderstanding. I'm Mexican and I don't speak English, but I would like to go out with you. And so that night she went home. <laughs> Uh, to her father's home, and she'd only been in the country, you know, for five weeks. She had her three little sisters who spoke English, and they had electricity, but she decided to get out a candle, <laughs> and she studied <laughs> how to how to make the correct this major error that she had made, so she could learn English, and so she learned all the phrases she needed to correct this monumental mistake. <laughs> That's not true. Studying by candlelight. <laughs> so I did I did memorize the phrases that my friend had written down on paper. I did not study by candlelight. I just turned on the light. Um, 
Then the next time that I saw him. So the next day I was walking across campus and um, I was going to basketball practice. And so I had to walk through the student union and I see her there. Uh, you know, I saw her and then I immediately kept walking. I didn't say anything because I had been roundly rejected the previous day. And so then I, uh, I'm walking and I hear the pitter patter of feet behind me and I hear somebody yelling, Ross, Ross, Ross. And I'm like really confused because I've never heard my name in a really thick Spanish accent at that time. <laughs> and I turn around and she was running behind me I was to not catch running. up with me. And I remember, I, I remember, I have a vivid image in my mind of her. Of Karen sprinting. I wouldn't call it a sprint, but definitely, you know, a fast from, jog. A 18, from an 18. I was not running. She has admitted to a jog in the past. She won't do it on the radio, <laughs> no, I'm no. sure, but she has. I was walking fast. And that's when she, <laughs> that's when she told me that she didn't speak English, that it was a. I did. I did that my mama's shoulder. I said, hey, uh, my name is Karen. No English, I'm Mexican. Uh, I would like to go out with you. <laughs> and at that time, the, the light bulb clicked for me. It was like, oh, obviously that makes a lot more sense than me getting rejected. So <laughs> I, it all made sense at that point. You know, it was like, it was like the, the light shining. Cupid, draw back your bow And let your arrow go Straight to my lover's heart for me But you know, to your question about like why the cultural thing, why the all of that, I guess, you know, from the very beginning, it was just always fun. You know, um, I didn't ever have a desire. I mean, I like Karen. And so we had fun together. And that's kind of just where it went. Is there anything, maybe one example each of you could share about something that you learned from the other that was maybe culturally Obviously, the language, mm -hmm. but but maybe some cultural insight that that you thought, aha, I didn't know that, but now you do. Oh man, there are so many. It's hard to put my finger on one. Uh, I will say one. Uh, you can think. Will I? Will I go? But I think so. Like being from the Midwest, being a Nebraskan, being a you know, I think that our culture here is very well organized. And I think that our culture here is sometimes very uh, logical and rational, uh, sometimes maybe to a fault where we can close our hearts a little bit, uh, maybe not be able to go with the flow in the same way. So I remember, for example, you know, if you, if you want to have a you want to hang out with my father and stepmother, my, my stepmother is from Dubuque, Iowa, from a large Catholic family. Uh, you need to make an appointment with Karen's family you never get any notice. So, you know, but like, but the, the, you know, there's good and bad to both of those. But I personally believe that being around her has helped me be just a little bit more relaxed than probably I would have been naturally. I was very competitive naturally. I know that I have learned that from her. Mm -hmm. I mean, something that is fresh in my mind right now is Thanksgiving. We don't celebrate that holiday in Mexico. So I was introduced to Thanksgiving 15 years ago when we were dating. He invited me to his family Thanksgiving. And I just remember thinking that the football, the TV, always on, always on and so loud. And I would just 
Uh, that was something that was very like uh, they do it like his mom and his family do it his dad and his family do it um other you know white friends that i have their families do it and i i just, I just think that's very just very interesting you know why not turn off the tv and have a conversation with people even you know like in a lot of families mexican families they they'll end up fighting but that's okay i mean they get over it later <laughs> just for the record i came up with a good example for her culture i think that's it we're just tv watchers but anyways i'm just kidding something that came on top of my head <laughs> i think it's really important that we acknowledge how essential the huskers are to Nebraska's, you know, cultural sense of identity, right? Mm -hmm. I, I absolutely believe that as a native Nebraskan. And I, it's something I kind of embrace too, because I think it's a really, you know, it's something that can allow people in Nebraska to communicate on, you know, with, uh, with a shared language and maybe certain like ideas, you know, I want to see, we, maybe we'll come to this later, but we work with immigrants a lot right now. I really wish that Nebraskans all throughout the state would embody uh, some of the qualities of our football team, right? Where we embrace competition, where we, uh, you know, like in Nebraska, we love our walk-on program. Walk-ons are people who weren't invited to be on the team, but showed up and wanted to be good enough to play on the team anyways. I kind of think of immigrants that way, you know, so I think I wish that there were uh, more people who would look at that uh, football team and embrace it as a means of communication uh, with people who maybe they don't have a lot of other things in common. So you've used the word immigrants. So I want to talk about this decision. You you decided to go to Mexico City. And so the tables get turned to some degree. So Karen, you are going home in a way, mm -hmm. whereas you'd been an immigrant in Columbus at, mm -hmm. at that point and transitioning through life as an immigrant. And now, Ross, it was your turn to go as a married couple with Karen to Mexico City and for the first time perhaps in your life to be an immigrant, a new person in a new place. What was driving the decision to go to Mexico City and what were your experiences of being there? We moved to Mexico City because I had a job at Deloitte & Touche as a consultant. And so because I spoke Spanish, uh, they sent me to work in Mexico City for one of one big client. The arrangement was that the project was, uh, was going to be I think it was nine to nine months to a year in Mexico City, and they were going to have me go every Sunday night and come back on Thursday nights for a whole year. And I said, well, you know, that doesn't sound very much fun. I'd rather move to Mexico City. You guys pay for an apartment, and I can just come and visit once a month or something. And they agreed to that. 
And so that's why we decided to move because uh, it was an opportunity for Ross to become bilingual. And and when you say that, when I, we go to Mexico, when we moved to Mexico, I was going home. I was in a way, I was in Mexico, but it was still a very big a culture shock because I was from this really, really small town in northern Mexico. And I was going out to live in a city that was 22 million people. That's like saying somebody from, you know, uh, Elmwood, Nebraska, moving to New York City is going home. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's a totally different situation. Mm-hmm. So. But because of my job, uh, they set us up very nicely in a very nice apartment in the best part of town. So it was great. Um, I had a lot of fun. Uh, Once we met friends, um, it was uh, it was awesome to explore the city, to have that opportunity. I was very grateful with my company and, um, you know, that Ross decided to to come with me. My experience was a little bit different than hers. Obviously, she was working. And so I was in law school, had finished my first year of law school, and we got this opportunity. And uh, I had always kind of had a desire to to see the world and kind of was I had the wanderlust bug, you know, and I had never had an opportunity to put it into practice. And so when this opportunity arose, I was like, all right, yeah, we're going to go. We're going to have an adventure. Yeah, I didn't know what the adventure was going to be. I didn't speak any Spanish at all, um, which... There's all kinds of hilarious stories of how, you know, I fell flat on my face uh, in various different ways, uh, whether it was trying to get a job, trying to negotiate with taxi drivers in Mexico City who are notorious regardless of where you, if you, you can't see me on the radio, but I'm 6'4 uh, and about 190 pounds. So I'm pretty, you know, obvious to see as a not a Mexican living in Mexico City. So they're hard on Mexicans, the taxi drivers. And when they saw me, they, you know, they want to, man, they take a bite out of me every time. But all kinds of things happen in Mexico. You know, I couldn't go and order. I couldn't get food. I couldn't, I just couldn't do anything at the beginning. And so that's kind of where the the adventure started. But I focused on learning Spanish. Uh, I got enough Spanish to get by after a few months. And then I started exploring the city. I went to anthropological museums, you know, Mexico It's a really old culture and society. Mexico City is amazing. The center of the city is built by the Spanish conquistadors with the blocks from the Indian temples, you know? So, like, so many things you could see there uh, and do there. Uh, It's a major city. It's as big as New York City or bigger. And so there's everything. There's world-class museums, world-class restaurants, uh, historical museums, art museums, you know, you know, all kinds of stuff, so much stuff in Mexico City. So how have these experiences over the last several years that you've been describing, how did those shape your desires and motivations to return to Omaha and begin some of these community service endeavors that you did start, and in particular, True Potential? Do you mind if I, I'll take yeah. that one? So when we came back from Mexico City, it had been, like I just described, an experience of learning many things and many times the hard way. And so when I came back, I had Spanish. I had worked a couple corporate legal jobs that I just was not feeling. They were not really not really direction I wanted to go. And so we decided we would just move back to Omaha and I would open up my own legal practice, uh, basically trying to use my Spanish and working with immigrants. What we what I discovered in that time was the exact reverse of what I had experienced in Mexico was happening to people in my own community. And 
so many of the things that you take for granted that you know about your own community, especially as a lifelong resident who knows the history and who's had generations of parents telling you all of these little advices that are kind of annoying but really are rooted in their own experiences, people don't have that. And so I started the legal clinic uh, at Our Lady of Guadalupe Church in South Omaha, which is like at that time was one of the biggest parishes in the city. It had like 4,000 families. Uh, I don't know if that's still true or not, but I started a legal clinic. They're doing free legal consultations every Monday night uh, between 7 and 9 p.m. And no. we actually, we just put a piece of paper, we printed a piece of paper that, that said Clinica Legal every Monday from 7 to 9. And it was me and I was pregnant with our first boy. Yeah. And I was. Uh, it was that summer that we started in 2011. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was basically, it was just literally just a piece of paper that we put on the parish offices. And then we went to all of the masses that Sunday and said, next Monday, we're going to start doing this. We're going to be there. It's going to be free. Uh, legal advice, if you want us to read something, if you want to ask anything that you want to ask, come to us. So over the years, it's we don't have a real number, but I, you know, based on the number of weeks and the number of people coming, we think it's probably at least 2,000 people have come. And so over that amount of time, you start to hear what people are dealing with on the street, right? And when people come in, the questions they ask like a lot of the lawyers be like, well, how can you answer all these questions? I'm like, well, because they're for immigrants and immigrants don't know what's going on. You know, I mean, it's enough to tell somebody, don't go to the car dealership at 24th and whatever, because they're going to charge you 18% interest. Go to this car dealership, right? Or they bring you the letters and you read them the letters. Or, I mean, I had one guy one time who should have known better, you would think, based on his status and position, but uh, wanted, you know, got a call from the IRS, you know, air quote, uh, that he needed to pay his IRS fine in iTunes uh, dollars and he needed to send it today. So, like, people, you know, explaining to them, if you owe somebody money, then you will be sued and you will be served with paper. Have you been sued and served with paper? No. Then you're trying, somebody's trying to scam you. Right. And don't, and if you ever get sued and served with paper, bring it here first. Don't do anything until you bring whatever you think is legal process to the clinic. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not really that sort of experience of what you said, you know, being an immigrant is like that. And then, you know, just so many things, you know, I mean, there's just a million little things that are, are so easy to give for a person who is from the community. It really, you know, over the years, people give you compliments about it and you're like, I don't really do anything. I just, you know, I just told people stuff, you know, that, that everybody that I know knows, you know. So that's when we started working with immigrants, with uh, the community. Um, we, beca- we became very involved um, with, uh, for example, the Nebraska, the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, the South Omaha Business Association, and uh, with the, you know, Our Lady of Guadalupe Church. Um, so we just started seeing um that we were very helpful in that area. So then in 2012, when um, DACA was announced by President Obama, uh, we got some clients first, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So I mean, at that time, we, it was a windfall for one, for me, right? I had been in uh, South Omaha helping all of these families for years at that point. And so when they announced this program, uh, I think I was able to actually help uh, 80 families, which, you know, I had like, uh, you know, I was a 27-year-old attorney with uh, two kids and, you know, that we charged private private fees and that was a windfall. 
And so we kind of kept thinking like, well, what can we do? What can we do to, you know, pay it forward? And I, we had both received scholarships. I was on scholarship for basketball at the community college and academic at Wayne State. And she was academic at Wayne State. And then I was on scholarship, a full tuition scholarship to the College of Law. And so to me, a scholarship seemed like an obvious way to help. I have always been kind of frugal. Uh, other people might call it cheap, whatever. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, from that point of view, I just thought, well, we don't need very much money to pay for community college. And so let's let's do scholarships to community college for DACA students. And DACA students, because, you know, it was obvious that, that they needed help from all of those meetings. You know, I mean, there's stories I could tell you. I could see their faces in my in my in my mind right now. But. There were people there who, you know, they can't accept private funds. They can't take out uh, loans and their parents are, by definition, undocumented immigrants. They don't have access to a lot of resources. And if you take away the government assistance, uh, there's there's actually there was nothing left. And so that's why we did it. You're talking about the genesis of true potential, but you're also clearly a very good storyteller. So why didn't you use uh, someone's journey through true potential to illustrate what it is and how it impacts people. Oh, so, this yeah. is very exciting. Man, <laughs> uh, we have so many students now and it's hard, you know, which uh, which student to pick. We should pick Luis because he's the most public. Yes. All right. So Luis, uh, we won't use his last name, but those that know him will know him, right? He was in his mid-20s when, he, when we met him. Okay. So we'll tell his story before us. But he was an undocumented immigrant child brought by his parents actually happens to be from the same town of 1,000 people as Karen, Mm -hmm. uh, which is totally random. He was in uh, Nebraska, and I won't give away his communities just because there's some people, right? But he was in Nebraska, graduates from high school, realizes he has no papers, can't go to school, can't afford it. 4.0 student. 4.0 student. So he starts working, uh, but he starts working with somebody else's name and eventually gets called into the police, gets arrested, prosecuted, gets put in immigration proceedings. And in June of 2012, which is the same month that DACA was uh, later announced, an immigration judge signed his deportation order and gave him 90 days to get out of the country. Uh, Then DACA was announced. And so his immigration attorney, which was not me, got that reversed, got him signed up for DACA. And so he had a new lease on life. And so what he started doing at that point was going to school in Columbus, Nebraska at Central Community College, now working and paying for one class a semester. Two years go by like that, and he applied for True Potential. And he had a 4.0 in community college at that time. We were able to obviously offer him the scholarship. From our point of view, he's like a rock star. How could we not offer him the scholarship? And he took, I think he finished his program, you know, in a year when it really should have taken him probably 18 months because he was taking 18 and 21. I don't know if he, he ever took 21. He was taking a lot of classes. He took a lot of classes. But he got a 4.0, graduated with highest marks uh, from Central Community College. He just graduated from the University of Nebraska at Kearney, where he got a full tuition scholarship. Now he's going to be uh, an employee at the University of Kearney in academic affairs and working on recruitment of diverse students to uh, Kearney because there are all kinds of, specifically Latinos, there's all kinds of people, but there's specifically, there's a lot of Latinos in rural Nebraska. And that's what he's doing. You know, so I think for us, uh, Luis is just kind of an awesome guy, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Today, the, the day we're recording this, um, depending upon the optics you choose to see it through, we have a caravan of, of migrants banging on the door of America in Tijuana right now. And being a tour guest. And we have troops stationed along the southern border, and we have the, the dreamer potential in limbo, as it were. How does true potential deal with the situation that we exist in today with an administration that, that is not supportive of DACA and DAPA programming? This question kind of comes a little bit more directly to me, I think, because I'm also I'm representing immigrants in immigration court, right? And I am representing immigrants in federal courts and uh fighting as hard as I can against these federal policies that, to me, I just deeply disagree with. I guess the way, you know, I guess after all the things that have been going on in the last few years, including Karen and I being subject to personal insults in the street, you know, with racial slurs that had never happened in Nebraska prior, hate mail uh, for running the program, uh, stuff like that had never happened to me. Uh, I mean, it's hard because it's my home state, you know, to have people uh, behave that way, I guess. But at the end of the day, I guess I just try and, and I'm not trying to, this is, I hope this doesn't sound too, uh, like, uh, lofty, but I just, you know, we have to act on the basis of compassion towards the people in front of us. You know, whether it's a true potential student, I'm trying to help them achieve, you know, the, the name of the program, the true potential. We're trying to help uncover those people's true potential. I think as a Nebraskan, I think that's best for Nebraska. Anybody in our community that is growing and, uh, you know, able to, you know, allow their talents to express themselves in our community is much better than somebody who has been, had their thumb put on them, told they don't belong, not allowed to participate that creates a negative cycle. But the same thing with all of these other things that are going on, you know, uh, in our court system here locally. If I'm talking to a judge, I'm just trying to be the voice of compassion and and I would say reason. But then, you know, you're asking about the caravans. The caravans is all the way down in Tijuana. 
you know, it's on the southern border. Now it involves the, you know, the military. And now we were just talking about now is the Mexicans are treating the Central Americans the same way that we are treating the Mexicans here. So there's just all of these, you know, forces out there. And I guess all I figure I can do is just, you know, be cool to the people who are in front of me. Um, you know, I was very sad and disappointed uh, just last week before Thanksgiving when the news started to uh, tell the story of Mexican nationals in Mexico being very racist towards the caravan individuals come from they come from Honduras and El Salvador I believe I don't know Guatemala from Guatemala so I was just heartbroken I felt that we are here in the United States fighting against all of these prejudgments and all of these um you know forces of trying to portray the entire Mexican community as rapists and vandals and whatever, drug dealers. And uh, it was very disappointing to me to see those reports, those videos of Mexicans um, mistreating uh, the caravan people. A lot of uh, nationalists, you know, screams and motos out in the street. And it was so deeply... He broke my heart. And I was telling Ross, you know, I feel that we're doing everything we can over here. And then a few people say something down there and it becomes this thing where uh, now we're giving the racist people over here in the United States a reason to say, look, the Mexicans, they don't even want the caravan people, you know. And it's, I think that it, it comes down to uh, human nature. It doesn't matter if you are Mexican or American or Guatemalan. It's human nature. There's always going to be a few people that cannot have compassion towards their neighbor, towards the people in front of them. And it is up to the rest of us to not generalize that um you know the the outspoken ones are usually the ones that are you know they're just they're just wrong they're wrong <laughs> and we cannot let we cannot generalize can i want to say this cuz i think you know when you you asked about like all right so what does it tell us about humanity you know and i think what she's saying about not generalizing i would take it as just slightly different direction and just say If there are people who are going to be vessels for these ideas, right, these ideas of negativity, uh, putting other people down, of of blowing up small distinctions, not recognizing the fundamental nature of human beings that's very similar, I think, at the end of the day, then, all right, those people are going to be vessels for that. But I have to be vessels for the opposite. I have to be a conduit for positive you know, thoughts. I have to be a conduit for compassion, hopefully honesty and, you know, all of those qualities. And if you're talking about humanity, then you have to remember that that is always going to exist, right? I've had a hard time battling it in court because I'll just be looking at the judges. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'll be looking at the judges and just be like, what is wrong with you? You know, like, how can you say some of the things you're saying? You know, in here in Omaha, the immigration judges 
will say that a person is irredeemably dangerous and therefore ineligible to be let out of jail at all because they had a single DUI years ago. No county judge would say that. Everybody gets a bond for, you know, so like the the United States attorney for the District of Nebraska, who was appointed by the same attorney general that made that rule, has a DUI, right? So it's like, how can you say these things? You know, they're not true. You just kind of got to roll with it. It's not, you're not going to, you're not going to remove negative emotions and all of that sort of stuff from humanity. It will always be with us. What gives you hope for the future? She's taking too long. So many things give me hope, okay? <laughs> I was trying to put my finger on one. <laughs> so many things. Everything is going to be all right. I really believe that sincerely because I'm never going to, me personally, I'm never going to stop trying to be positive. And I know that there are so many other people like me. I'm not special, right? I know that there are so many other people who care enough to help out and Some of this political stuff is how people view things that are a thousand miles away. I really, in my heart, believe, especially as a native Nebraskan, a place where some people from the outside would say our society is in like full agreement with Trump and whatnot. There are people like that. But I really believe that when it comes down to person to person interactions here in this society, that there are people who will do the right thing and that have compassion in their hearts and that aren't uh, totally dark the way we like to throw it at each other. What gives me hope is our true potential students. I mean, just to see one of those kids graduate and get a job, they send me an email and they said, oh, my God, I'm, I'm working at Lincoln Public Schools now. So that's what gives me hope. And it gives me so much joy. And even if we can help one person, it's totally worth it. And I'm not going to lose hope if there's one person that can be helped. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. My guests today have been Karen and Ross Peshek, founders of True Potential and all-round decent good people. <laughs> Thank you, Ross and Karen, for being on the show. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.